When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome, everyone. Today, we get a classic episode of Star Trek. Season 1, episode 26 of the original series, The Devil in the Dark. We start hard and heavy. Soundtrack booming. We find ourselves in some deep caves with a crew of miners armed with what look like phasers. They're on watch for some thing that has killed 50 people already. The crew heads out, leaving a guard. That guard is pretty hopeful that the Enterprise will arrive during his watch. Is it true the Enterprise is on its way? It could get here in the next four hours? But within seconds of being left alone, something appears out of the darkness and attacks the guard. The crew hears the commotion, rushes back, and sees that the guard has been... Burned to a crisp. Oh, so it's going to be a horror movie episode. A literal monster of the week. The Enterprise arrives to Janus 6 to meet with Chief Engineer Vandenberg. He's the administrator of this Pergeum mining facility. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy learn about the monster that has been killing the miners. Vandenberg says they found astonishingly rich deposits of Pergeum and other minerals deeper in the planet. We're rich. They started digging deeper, and then suddenly their machinery was being sabotaged. Hence the word... Sabotage. Shortly after that, miners started to get killed. Most recently, the attacks have started happening on the higher levels. The monster appears to be on the offensive. Kirk's team asks questions to learn more. McCoy offers to examine the body of the recently killed miner. And we meet Chief Ed Appel, who saw and shot the monster. He says it's big and shaggy. Wasn't me. And that his phaser had no effect on it whatsoever. Vandenberg says they've halted production and are now dumping the problem in the lap of Starfleet and the Enterprise. Federation wants for GM, then you're going to have to do something about it. Spock spies an object on the administrator's desk. It's a sphere about the size of a kickball. Vandenberg says it's a silicon nodule and there are millions of them down in the caves and the tunnels. Spock's pretty impressed with this. It's a, it's a geological rarity. The miners leave as McCoy returns. He reports it's not that the person was burned to death, but more corroded, like, like it was dropped in a vat of acid. Eckhart! Think about the future! Kirk points out that that sounds similar to the damage caused to the machinery. Spock charts the points of attack on a chart of the tunnels. He says that the creature must have moved at lightning speed to perpetrate the attacks. We hear the sound of the creature again. It's down near the power reactor. It attacks, 
kills the guard standing outside. And we see that it ate its way into the reactor itself. The reactor alarm sounds. Something's happening in the reactor room. Vandenberg, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy arrive on the scene. They find that the main circulating pump for the reactor is gone. The colony doesn't have a replacement. The reactor is, is basically a time bomb now. They're facing either death by asphyxiation, death by radiation poisoning. When you don't have the tools you need to complete a job, it's time to innovate. And when it's time to innovate on the Enterprise, you call Mr. Scott. Scotty thinks he can rig something together to keep the reactor in place and pumping for eh, maybe about 48 hours. But he's going to need some time to set it up. Kirk tells him to make it his top priority. Vandenberg is worried that the 48 hours won't be enough time. Kirk says it has to be. Over a dozen planets rely on the progeum that comes out of this facility, and the equipment is critical. Vandenberg says his priority isn't the progeum at all, but his people. Score one for Chief Engineer Vandenberg. As a leader, you have a singular priority. The health and safety, the well-being of your team. Of course, there are times when the mission may outweigh that, but, but I think those are generally like military or public safety operations like firefighting, law enforcement. But with those jobs, risking your health, your safety, it, it, it's a part of the job. It's, <laughs> it's literally in the job description. If you're leading a sales team or a restaurant crew or an industrial mining facility, say, safety is always job number one. Vandenberg puts that straight into action here. Given the choice to mine per GM or evacuate his teams, he chooses evacuation. And not because he doesn't care about the per GM or the planets relying on Janus 6 for it, but because he simply cares about the people more. We're going to have a lot of pretty heavy stuff to talk about in the command code section. So let's take some time to talk about this here. Taking the time to invest in your people's health and wellness is time well spent. Promoting physical, mental, and emotional well-being makes it easier for people to bring their whole selves to the workplace. Like, when do people tend to make mistakes? When do people tend to get themselves into trouble? More often than not, it's when they have something outside of the workplace affecting them. I'm talking poor health, financial trouble, marital, family issues, you know, the, the baggage that we all carry with us. If you, as a leader can create initiatives and, and spaces at work for people to give attention to these issues, they are much more likely to bring the quality that you hired them for. Imagine taking two hours to host a webinar on financial literacy for your staff. Now, yeah, that's, that's two hours that people aren't being productive, right? Well, for, for two, maybe eight, even 47 or more people on your team that are struggling to, to pay rent, to buy food or keep the lights on, those two hours can make all the difference in the world. And guess what? Once they aren't stressed out about having food on the table, they can focus completely on the work in front of them. You invested just two hours, but now you're getting closer to 100% of the hours that they put in every day. In this moment, Vandenberg strikes me as the type of leader that takes the time to invest in his teams. He's willing to, at the drop of a hat, abandon the entire mining operation solely for the sake of the miners. If he's willing to do that, 
you can bet he's promoting walking groups, support work groups, employee resource groups, and other investments that help people be their whole selves. Well done, Chief Vandenberg. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are debriefing. Spock points out that there was intelligence behind stealing that circulating pump. That was a planned and well-thought-out action. They postulate that the creature is actually trying to drive the miners away. Spock points out that the life as we know it is based on carbon. What if there was life based on, I don't know, silicon? With that, they dive into how that would be different and, and, and what methods they could use to attack it. Kirk points out that the Enterprise crew have stronger phasers than the miners. And Spock says he can adjust them to be more effective against silicon. McCoy finally speaks out. He's, he's had enough. Silicon-based life is physiologically impossible, especially in an oxygen atmosphere. He just can't buy into the theory at all. But despite his input, Kirk decides to test the silicon theory. He calls for the phasers to be modified, and then he calls for a crew to be called down. Spock, pondering the silicon nodule, starts to see some possibilities. Pressed on it, he says he's working through the ideas, so Kirk asks him to speculate. McCoy, still not buying into this at all, physically leans into the conversation. Spock says that the, the nodules were found on the same level where the machinery first started being destroyed. While he believes those two points may be connected, he, he also chooses to not give McCoy any more ammo to make fun of him with. I have already given Dr. McCoy sufficient cause for amusement. The security team makes it down and Kirk briefs them. 50 people have died. I want no more deaths. He tells them flat out, the mission is shoot to kill. Based on Spock's speculation, he sends the crew to the level of the silicon nodules, level 23. We get quite a few scenes of the team searching through the tunnels. Man, the lighting, the set design here is great. They really do a good job making this feel like a massive system of tunnels, when in reality, it's probably a really tiny little soundstage. One of the security team members is attacked. Before he even has a chance to fire, he's dead. Kirk and Spock rush to the scene, but he, he, he's already gone. As they study the tunnel that the creature made in the rock, they remark on how it would have taken, it would have taken weeks for the equipment that they have or the miners have to have made it, and the creature did it in just seconds. As they're studying it, the creature comes out of a tunnel and heads right towards them. It looks like Pizza the Hut fell down and is crawling across the floor. Pizza the Hut! Kirk gets off a shot and it retreats. It runs away. They chase after it, but it is gone in the blink of an eye. There's a piece of the creature left on the ground. Kirk must have shot it off. They confirm that it's silicon-based and that it can move through rock just as, as, as you and I move through the air. Spock adjusts his tricorder based on the new information and confirms there is only the one creature. Maybe, uh, maybe it just has a super long lifespan. Maybe it's the last of its kind. They speculate as to, as to what its situation is. Regardless, Spock says that killing it would be a crime against science. Kirk responds that the mission is to protect the colony and to get the progeum flowing. I'm sorry, Mr. Spock, but I'm afraid the creature must die. So, like, this is a thing, right? Blind adherence to the mission? Frankly, I'd expect more from Kirk here. The parameters have, have, have changed. What was known going into this isn't necessarily relevant at all anymore. 
changing conditions like this needs at a minimum some consideration, right? I mean, this is where, this is where being part of a chain of command really has its advantages. If I were in Kirk's position, I'd be reaching out to whomever gave me this assignment. I mean, if nothing else, just to update them on what I what I'd learned so far. I mean, in this moment, we've gone from a from a horror movie monster blindly killing and attacking miners to a life form that our science said wasn't even possible. I mean, that's a that's a really big deal. Am I right? Yeah. So, so you update the admiral or fleet captain or whatever, and then proceed based on what they tell you. I mean, imagine, imagine a situation where Kirk and his team are successful. They kill the creature and the miners get back to work. He hands in his after action report. You know, the one stating that he killed a life form. Wait a minute. Like this just hit me. Yeah. I mean, right now in this, in this episode, this moment, the mission is to protect the miners and get the Pergeum flowing. The spice must flow. But isn't the core mission of the Enterprise to seek out new life? New life and, and, and new civilizations? I think this is a perfect example of the cognitive dissonance that occurs when you're told to do a thing that goes against the core values and mission of your organization. I mean, if, if your mission is to, is to grow apple trees, but your boss tells you to burn down a bunch of apple trees, you should be asking some questions. Kirk has been sent out to seek new life. And here it is right in front of him. So, so he's just going to kill it. Yeah, no, I, I don't like it. You find yourself in this situation. You ask the question. I mean, maybe you do have to burn down the apple trees because that actually helps apple trees grow or, or, or something. I don't, I don't know anything about apple trees. Maybe that's not a great example, but, but you see what I'm saying? There might be more to this than he knows. Like maybe he still needs to kill this thing because Starfleet already has Intel on this life form or, or maybe this changes everything with this new information. If Kirk, if Kirk just asks the question, maybe they still want him to kill it, but they, but they give him instructions on capturing samples or something, or they totally change the mission and shift it to a first contact kind of a thing. Well, we'll never know because Kirk unilaterally decides that the mission stands and this thing must die. Whew, that was a lot. <laughs> I'm still feeling pretty fired up about it. Bottom line, just ask questions. I mean, seriously, if you hear nothing else, just please ask questions. Okay, back to the episode. Kirk's briefing the security team. Spock mentions they might capture the creature and Kirk, Kirk just kind of loses it. He, he totally, totally reinforces his shoot to kill order. Your orders are shoot to kill. Protect yourself at all times. After he dismisses the security team, he chastises Spock for countering his order. Kudos to Kirk for doing this away from the security team. Praise in public, punish in private. We all, we all know that, right? But Spock is great here. He doesn't offer any excuses. He doesn't try to minimize the situation. He accepts accountability, explains his point of view. Kirk, hearing it, confirms that the creature will be killed. His order stands. He then reassigns Spock to help Mr. Scott with his project. But Spock pushes back. 
Kirk says that having both the captain and the XO together is too much of a risk. Ironically, a precaution he basically never even mentions again, even though TNG and other future Star Trek have this as a core directive. But Spock offers the odds of anything bad happening to them. The odds against you and I both being killed are 2,228.7 to 1. And Kirk changes his mind. He allows Spock to stay. Awesome thing here. Kirk initially makes an emotionally based decision. Spock counters with data and logic. Kirk hears this and changes his mind. And he changed his mind because he let the data steer his thinking, not, not his emotions. Not so awesome thing? I'm pretty sure he was reassigning Spock because he countered his order in front of the security detail. First, he addressed the problem so there isn't a need to further punish Spock. And second, if this is true, he straight up lied to Spock. Not cool. Now, speaking of Mr. Scott, his idea was a total wash. His rigged solution gave out and there isn't anything more he can do. Kirk orders the evacuation of the colony, and Scotty says they've got mm, maybe 10 hours until the reactor goes critical. Vandenberg and some of his team stay along to help search for the creature. They've got clubs and phasers. Man, they are fired up and ready to go. We get more scenes of the expanded crews searching through the tunnels. Kirk finds himself in a cave that is full of those silicon nodules. We see the creature. It shoves a support, causing a cave-in, and almost buries Kirk. But he's okay. No damage done. And then it happens. The rock is melted right in front of us, and the creature makes a beeline to Captain Kirk. He raises his phaser, and the creature stops. He lowers his phaser, and the creature advances. Kirk tests this a few times and decides there's a real intelligence to this creature. It's actively avoiding the phaser. It knows it's a threat. Seriously? <laughs> it, it took this to show its intelligence? What about, what about the targeted attack on the one piece of equipment that the colony now only needs to survive, but, but is not even replaceable? I mean, I mean, it was clear from way early on. <sighs> Come on, Kirk. Well, he lets Spock know that the creature is right in front of him. So Spock hurries up. Despite the opportunity to kill it, Kirk won't. Spock even eggs him on. Kill it, Captain. Quickly. Tries to get him to do it, but, but Kirk is seeing things differently now. He sits down on a rock. He tries talking to the creature. It turns, and it shows Kirk its injury. He continues to talk to it as it climbs up onto some rocks. Spock arrives, and keeping his phaser pointed at it, he joins Kirk and points out there are thousands of the silicon nodules around them. After some discussion, Spock offers to mind meld with the creature. A mind meld is where a Vulcan joins their mind with someone else's, and they can share thoughts. They can, they can communicate. He approaches the creature slowly, carefully. Moments later, he tears away, saying that it is feeling intense pain, absolute agony. It moves across a section of rock and etches a message into it. No kill I. Spock points out the mind meld worked both ways, and it gained knowledge of them as well. He goes on to say that it's called the Horda, and that while it's an intense pain, it's not behaving at all like a, like a wounded animal. There is clearly much more to the Horda than they initially thought. You can see the conflict playing out on Kirk's face. He was, he was completely set on killing this creature, this monster. But it turns out 
it's not a monster at all. He's still focused on getting the circulating pump back and protecting the miners, but he realizes that he's going to have to treat this Horda as an equal. He has to gain its trust. He calls McCoy, telling him that he has a patient on the 23rd level and to beam down immediately. Spock questions this decision. Jim, I remind you that this is a silicon-based form of life. Dr. McCoy's medical knowledge will be totally useless. Not only is the Horda a silicon-based life form, meaning that McCoy's medical knowledge won't apply, but McCoy doesn't even believe this form of life is even possible. Kirk says an amazing and powerful thing in response. He's a healer, let him heal. Oh, this is good. And this is something that applies directly to our everyday life. Here, Kirk knows McCoy. He knows who he is, what he's capable of, and he knows that McCoy knows what his job is. Then this is the real powerful part. He just opens the door and lets McCoy do his thing. When he comes down momentarily, he basically says, heal it and leaves the rest up to McCoy. What we'll see is the power of trusting and empowering people. Kirk asks Spock to re-engage with the Horda and find out why it resorted to murder. Spock's pretty apprehensive. For that level of communication, he says he's going to need to be in physical contact with it. Plus, he's going to have to open up his mind even more as well. The mind meld can be a painful, traumatic experience. But understanding the importance of this and that establishing meaningful communication could, could save the Horda's life, Spock agrees. He lays his hands on the Horda, and we see the dedication Leonard Nimoy has for this character. The thousands. Devils. Eternity ends. And he is all in here. While he's communicating, Kirk contacts the security team. They're waiting just outside the cave they're in. He tells them that under no circumstances are they or the miners to enter the cave. McCoy arrives as Spock is in the throes of his mind meld. Kirk quiets him and gestures for him to stand by him. McCoy quietly complains that the Horda is his patient. And then Kirk just tells him, Help it. Treat it. Spock continues while McCoy examines the phaser wound. He looks at Kirk, exasperated. He says it's basically made of stone and that I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. And Kirk just says it's wounded and needs to be helped. Period. That's it. Frustrated, McCoy continues his examination. Spock is successful in learning where the circulating pump is. It's in the vault of tomorrow that is through the chamber of the ages. He learns that the Horda is the last of its kind, but is awaiting the rebirth of all of them. You see, about every 50,000 years, all but one of the Horda dies. Its job is to watch over the eggs of the next generation until they hatch and the species thrives once again. The eggs are those silicon nodules that the miners have been disturbing, stealing, and destroying. The eggs are close to hatching, but with the living Horda wounded, it's convinced it's going to die and the young Horda won't have anyone to care for them. The race... Their, their entire race will become extinct. It hasn't, it hasn't been attacking the miners, but, but it's been defending its very species. Kirk enters the chamber and he finds millions of these eggs. They're about to hatch. He finds the pump and he returns to the cave. 
McCoy calls up to the ship and asks for some thermal concrete as the Horda begins to succumb to death. Well, I had the ship beam down 100 pounds of that thermal concrete, you know, the kind we use to build emergency shelters out of them. It's mostly silicone. But he doesn't stop, and he begins applying the thermal concrete to the Horda's wound. Outside the cave, the miners are getting upset. They overpower the unsuspecting security team and rush in. They attempt to tackle the Horda, but phasers raised. Kirk and Spock block them. If you want to get to that worm, you're going to have to go through me. Kirk says to them that, 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 yeah, it's killed 50 miners, but they have killed thousands of young Horda. He then walks them through his change of heart and shares that the Horda, the Horda had no objection to sharing the planet and its resources until the eggs were being destroyed and the young Horda killed. There is real remorse and sorrow from the miners. We didn't know. How could we? I really appreciate this moment. It would have been really easy for the writers to have kept the miners as an angry mob, ready to extract revenge from this creature. Instead, they show that the belief, the, the, the ideal of intelligent life being, being special, sacred, is, is more ubiquitous than just Starfleet. They thought that they, the miners, were just being attacked. But there were barriers between them that served only to escalate the conflict. The species, the language, the, the, the very chemical makeup of their being. This is not unlike so many situations and interactions in today's world. Barriers between individuals, communities, nations, and people often serve to do nothing more than escalate conflict. This is an example of Kirk and Spock taking advantage of an opportunity to begin bridging those barriers instead of running into them, as well as an example of a culture in the miners that have a foundational respect for intelligent life. Kirk uses this moment to build an even bigger bridge between the barriers that will benefit everyone. With thousands, maybe millions of Horda moving around and creating tunnels, the miners can access resources exponentially more easily and increase profits a thousandfold. They can live in harmony, helping each other, if, and that's a big if, the Horda itself survives. McCoy, being awesome as always, says, Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. He says that by patching it with the thermal concrete, it's bandaged up, and it's going to heal perfectly well. Excited for the opportunity, Spock agrees to talk with the Horda again. The Horda has a very logical mind, and after close association with humans, I find that curiously refreshing. And he negotiates the agreement. On the Enterprise, for what I think might be the first time this whole episode, we get the trio around the chair, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Chief Vandenberg reports on what a success the agreement's been, even in this short time, they're mining faster and better than ever before. Now, there's probably a whole other discussion to be had about using a native species to strip mine a planet. But hey, this was 1967, right? Stuff like that was totally cool. And then Vandenberg says, You know, the Horda aren't so bad once you get used to their appearance. Which is a remarkable first step in accepting those that are not as you. Like I feel you have to do with the original series, when you look at this through the eyes of a young viewer in the late 60s, messages like this were, were, were powerful and necessary to hear. They may not hold up to today's standards, but without these moments, we wouldn't be where we are now. Spock, though, uses it as a hilarious opportunity to remind us that it is not just the privileged class that gets to say what looks odd. What Chief Vandenberg said about the Horta is exactly what the Mother Horta said to me. 
She found humanoid appearance revolting, but she thought she could get used to it. And that leads to what may be the greatest closing line in all of Star Trek. I suspect you're becoming more and more human all the time. Captain, I see no reason to stand here and be insulted. This episode is why I love Star Trek. In a time when a monster could just be a monster, and the story was people trying to figure out how to stop it, Star Trek comes in and says, this monster actually thinks you're the monster. And then, even better, it ends with no one being a monster, but just two groups of beings coming together to create a better whole. Does this episode have its faults? Oh, absolutely. I think Kirk being so focused on killing the monster, even after it shows signs of intelligence and unique life, to be wildly inconsistent with his character and with what we've been told about the Federation. There's some inconsistencies and some character motivation and their, their approaches, but nothing, nothing so bad that it takes away from the story. Oh, and, and, and this struck me at the end of the episode, but there wasn't a single line spoken by a woman. And I, I don't even think we saw one until we were on the bridge of the Enterprise. There's a bit of well-known trivia about this episode that's pretty cool. Well, maybe cool's not the right word, but it's definitely interesting. See, during the episode's filming, William Shatner was informed that his dad had passed away. And while it was expected that he would fly home right away, he chose to finish his parts first. Now, this was a relief to the production staff. I mean, it could have seriously delayed filming. But... Shatner has shared that he chose to stay because the cast and crew had become like his family and, and, and their support was what he needed when he heard this terrible news. It's a touching story that really shows a side of Shatner that you really don't hear about that often these days. Also, this is the first time that McCoy uses the, I'm a doctor, not a blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, that fact alone makes this a totally iconic episode. In my opinion, this has to go down as one of the best episodes of all Star Trek. Its messages are timeless, but the time in which it was produced makes that even more powerful. Stories like this simply weren't told, and especially on a nationally broadcast TV show. And that ending sequence with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy on the bridge? Incredible. If nothing else in this has compelled you to go watch this episode again, let this alone be your reason. The fact they have so perfectly nailed their relationship at this point of infancy of the series, let alone the franchise. Totally amazing. Command codes verified. Assumptions, misunderstandings, poor communication. In this episode, those nearly lead to the extinction of an entire race. In life, these can lead to so many things, ranging from eating something you don't like for dinner to poor work performance to war, or even genocide. One of the things that makes this episode so great is the microcosmic hyperbole. I mean, it, it, it's able to take in, it, it, extinction-level interactions and pare it down to Kirk, Spock, and the Horda. It is, of course, wildly more complex in our lives, but this is a telling example, really, really a fable, almost. I'm going to keep the scope of this analysis to the, to the workplace, but the principles of this apply to every single possible interaction you will ever have, from personal 
to family, all the way to your, your, your community, your nation, the, the entire world. But let's imagine a workplace that has, let's say, a relatively diverse staff, but the leadership is completely male. There's ethnic, racial diversity among that group of leaders, but every single one is a man. One of the positions has opened up and quite a few staff members are excited to apply. One of them is a woman that has years of leadership experience, but joined this company as a staff member because of its impressive reputation. We're going to follow her story. So far, this is a situation we can all envision, right? I mean, pretty real life, not terribly uncommon. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, I'm going to try and keep the math relatively simple. We'll say, we'll say 50 people have applied for this position. 39 men and 11 women. Candidates are going to meet with people at the first two levels of leadership for a series of short interviews. HR shares the qualifications, knowledge, skills, and abilities the candidates will be assessed on with the candidates. Because they shared that, eight people dropped out of the process stating they, they just didn't meet one or, or many of those. Six of those eight were women. The interview sessions kick off. The concept is that among the various members of leadership, all the skills and all that stuff will be assessed. The woman that we're following is friends with one of the other applicants that, that, that's going through the process who, who's a man. After they get through all their interviews, she tells him just how exhausting it was to meet with six different people. She says that most of them met for an hour, maybe a little more, but a couple of them only lasted about 15 minutes. Her friend was kind of surprised at that. He said that he only had to meet with three different people and each one lasted almost exactly an hour. She thinks that's odd, but, but also she's accustomed to interviews looking a little different for people. So she just kind of files that fact away. After the interviews, they drop from the 42 candidates to just 15, 13 of which are men and two are women, including our hero. Okay, just checking in. Are we still tracking here? I mean, we're veering down a path for sure at this point, but I, I, I want to be sure that you can still see this is, this is a real life thing that happens in the world today. Please, please let me know if I'm way off base here. So the process continues as they do, and they end up with their top two candidates, our hero and her friend. In their conversations, they realize they have had very different interview experiences They've been asked different questions, met with different number of people, and for different amounts of time. Her friend has been asked a lot of questions about projects he's led, how he motivates teams, and how he holds people accountable. The hero of our story has been asked about her family obligations, who she relies on for technical expertise, and how she communicates with others. You can probably see where this is going, right? Her friend gets the job. I mean, she, she's happy for him. She thinks he'll do well enough but she doesn't understand how the decision was made. She has more experience than he does, and her experience is more relevant. She has a higher level of education, and she's got a stack of letters of recommendation that would impress anyone. When she asks why her friend was chosen, she's told that his communication style is a better fit. Wow. What an incredible story, right? Well, if only it were just a story. I did this to you last time, too, but, but this is also a true story. In the true story, our hero filed a formal complaint, and it was found that she was a victim of discrimination. The company had used a selection process that had a clear bias that favored men. 
To their credit, this company took really meaningful steps to improve their recruitment and hiring practices, but they also focused on training their leaders to recognize their unconscious biases and to be aware of them, not only in hiring, but in all their communications with their teams and their customers. Good for them. And, and I really hope they're still continuing on a path that builds inclusivity and provides opportunities for everyone. In this episode of Star Trek, though, a lot of the same things happened. There can't possibly be a life form that is based on anything other than carbon. That thing attacking us has got to be evil. These silicon nodules, they're pretty neat, but worthless. These are all biases, assumptions that steer the discussions, the questions, and actions of everyone involved. It took a traumatic experience for the tide to shift. It wasn't until the Horda was wounded and dying that it chose to protect itself, demonstrating its intelligence. From there, Kirk and Spock pause and reassess the situation. Here, here's another repeat lesson for us. Pause. Take a moment to stop, breathe, and look at situations through new eyes whenever possible. What they do at this point is look for a way to effectively communicate with the Horda. Once they can do that, everything changes. In our example, it took a traumatic experience for the organization to pause. A qualified person was not selected for a job, they filed a complaint. Once that happened, they paused, looked at the situation differently, and reassessed the situation. Much like Kirk and Spock, they focused on improving communication. It's pretty remarkable, I think, and not really surprising that so many things can be boiled down to communication. Saying what you mean and what you mean being heard and understood. Imagine if the Horda and the miners were able to communicate immediately. As soon as they breached the 23rd level, the Horda could have said, Whoa! This is my nursery and literally my entire species is here waiting to be born. You think... You think maybe you could hold off for like, I don't know, a year? And hopefully, the miners would have been cool with that. But they couldn't communicate. The barriers and gaps between them were vast and great. No common form to communicate. Totally disparate motivations. And, 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 and their basic atomic and cellular makeup is totally and wildly different. But through Vulcan mind melding, they were able to bridge all of that and communicate well. Now, I don't think we'll find ourselves in a situation quite like that in our lifetimes, nor will we have a Vulcan available to us to just mind meld. But we still have significant gaps and barriers between us and others. Some are more obvious. People that are nonverbal or deaf often require different approaches to communicating. People that do not speak your born language is their first language. Or who come from a different culture, they, they require different approaches. And we don't always know what those approaches are. Patience, grace, and humility are key qualities in bridging those gaps and barriers. Taking the time to learn how others communicate and how you need to communicate with them is critical. We see this with the Horda. Once they can communicate, they find they, 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 they can not only just live together, but they can help each other. You could try to understand me. I could try to understand you. The episode ends with a win for everyone and a much more significant win than ever imagined. So what wins are waiting for you? What potential 
is waiting to be unleashed in your team that is just waiting for you to effectively communicate. Who knows? Maybe you have a Horda on your team just dying to eat through some stone for you and give you and your team access to resources you didn't even dream possible. Patience, grace, and humility. This really is the next step from diversity. If having a diverse team is the first thing you do, that's, that's great. That's awesome. But the next step is creating inclusion so everyone feels included as a contributing and valuable member of the team. To achieve inclusion, you and your team must be able to effectively communicate. Once you've done that, you'll have the team that brings their whole self to work, provides innovative and unique ideas and approaches, and everyone will benefit. We see this done not only with the Horda, but also with Dr. McCoy. See, McCoy, McCoy wants nothing to do with this. Silicon-based life is a fantasy, and why are we wasting our time on this? But really, it's his actions, his innovation, that brings everything together. Kirk helps McCoy unlock his bricklayer potential by communicating effectively with him. He's not going to convince him that the Horda is an intelligent, sentient, silicon-based life form. He's not going to tell him how to do his job. He simply appeals to who McCoy is. You're a healer. There's a patient. I know a lot of people that would have wasted their time making their point, right? McCoy, you're wrong. Silicon-based life is a thing. And then they'd try to convince him to help it. That's not solving the problem. That's proving your point. Those are two very different things. What Kirk does is acknowledge who McCoy is and then gets out of the way and lets him do his thing. He creates a space for McCoy to innovate and try things out. And he absolutely does. His quote about curing a rainy day totally justifies Kirk's approach. It was never about right or wrong or, or even how. It was just do what you do. You do you, right? Corey Taylor, the singer for Slipknot, Stone Sour, and about a hundred other acts, gave a talk at Oxford University in 2011 about not following your dreams but following what you're good at. It sounds pretty counter to what we're taught through life, but it's a really interesting theory and it's got strong merit. What it really kind of amounts to is, is what we see from McCoy. He is a healer. He is good at healing. Was it his dream to be a doctor? Well, I don't know if we'll ever know that, but he's good at being a doctor. He's good at healing and that's what he pursued. Kirk knows this about him, so that's how he communicates with him. Again, he is patient. He gives grace and is humble when communicating with McCoy here. That doesn't mean he's not deadline-focused. It doesn't mean he's not direct. But he absolutely is not concerned with being right or even being involved in the solution. He just wants to point his best possible person at the problem and let them solve it. We covered a lot in this one and probably left a lot on the table to still be discussed. Like I said, this really is Star Trek at its best. So what do you think? What did I leave on the table that we should talk about? Let's do it. I'm on all the social media at Jeff T. Aiken. Jeff T. as in thermal concrete, A-K-I-N. I really enjoy creating this podcast for all of you. It means the world to me when I hear from you. It would also mean the world to me if you would tell a friend or a colleague about the Starfleet Leadership Academy. 
Thank you so much for sharing the podcast. Okay, time to see what we're going to watch next time. Working. Voyager, Season 1, Episode 16, Learning Curve. This was the first season finale for Voyager. Great timing. In the last episode, for the cause, I said some stuff about how Voyager handled the Maquis storylines. Well, maybe I'll eat my words watching this one. So until then, Ex Astra Scientia. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.